You're listening to Cross Section, the podcast of the Summit View Church of Christ. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord Good morning. We will be in the second of those letters, Second Corinthians. Our text comes from chapter five, verses eleven to twenty-one. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open there. And if you're taking notes this morning. Write down these key words for this passage, either in your Bible or in the notes in the bulletin. For verses 11 to 15, write the word motives. You see our key words up here on the screen behind me. Motives for verses 11 to 15. For verses 16 to 17, write the word mindset. Mindset. Verses 18 to the first part of 19, that's what 19, uh, we call that 19A, it's just the first part of verse 19, write ministry, ministry, and for the second part of verse 19 through verse 21, write message, message, those are our four key words for this passage this morning, and I'll explain why those words are important in just a few minutes. We've been studying how to let our light shine how to be excellent witnesses for Jesus as he called us to be, how to live for him and share our faith with others. And today we finish the first part of this lesson series, which has focused on tips and techniques from the Bible for how to let our light shine. And so we've talked about doing good deeds and having an outward, not merely inward perspective. We've talked about planting and watering, but God provides the increase. We've talked about incarnational ministry. Remember that? And we've talked about praying and speaking graciously. We talked about those last week. Today we'll talk about persuading others and how we go about that. Starting next week, we'll go into part two of this lesson series, and we'll take six lessons to look at the book of 1 Peter, Peter's first letter that we have in our scriptures. It's a letter from Peter to Christians who, A, are suffering in their faith, or for their faith, and B, in spite of their suffering, have a great opportunity to be powerful witnesses for Jesus to the people around them. And so we'll learn from Peter how we can be excellent witnesses for Jesus in a culture that is often populated with many people who do not at least yet, believe in Jesus and who may even be antagonistic toward our faith. So that's coming up. As we've been working through this series, thinking about how to let our light shine to others, how to be good witnesses for Jesus, I've noticed recently, and maybe you've had a similar experience, that as I've been thinking more intentionally about how to be an excellent witness for Jesus and how to let my light shine I'm noticing ways in which I tend to struggle with that. So, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I was at the grocery store, and in front of me was, uh, in the checkout line, was a young man dressed in a way that I would not dress. He looked a little rebellious to my 50-year-old eyes. Some young man he knew, I guess, walked into the store while we were standing there in line, And they threw each other a hand signal that I thought looked like some kind of gang sign. And I remember thinking to myself, this guy in front of me is some kind of gang member or something. 
I need to keep an eye on him, and I wish I weren't in the same line. Now, the clothes, the tattoos, the hair, the hand signal, I was a little uncomfortable being that close to him. But I kept quiet, stayed peaceful. He bought his groceries, and he left, and then I did the same. And, and out in the parking lot, I saw this guy again. He had just put his groceries in his car, and you know what he was doing after that? He was rolling his shopping cart to the cart corral at the front of the store. He didn't just leave it out in the parking lot. He took the time to put it back. And I was surprised. And I thought to myself, gang members don't take their shopping carts back. I mean, do they? I don't know. When I saw that, I realized instantly what I had done. I had just looked at this man and judged him made up a story in my head about who he is based on very little information. His appearance, a hand gesture I didn't understand, and that probably did not mean what I had imagined it meant. Then, since I've been thinking a lot about letting our light shine, I had to ask myself, is it possible for us to successfully let the light of Christ shine out from us to others, if we begin with a mindset that assumes the worst about the other person. What are our motives for wanting to share the gospel? And do those motives motivate us to open ourselves to more people or to close off and isolate ourselves? Some of you have heard me tell the story before of one of my classmates when I was in graduate school in Memphis, Tennessee. He took a job preaching for a little church, uh, just uh, a little bit of a drive away uh, across the state border in Mississippi. This preacher was doing good work. He hadn't been there real long, but the church really liked him. He had the heart of an evangelist, still does today, just like many of you have he started getting to know people in that Mississippi town, started inviting them to church. And some of them came. Some of the people who came were from the other side of town, across the railroad tracks. Well, the church didn't have anyone from across the railroad tracks, that side of town. And you could tell if you visited them because folks on the church's side of the tracks were white and folks on the other side of the tracks were black. Well, he invited some of those folks from the other side of the tracks because he believed that in Christ, God makes all of us one. God breaks down the barriers that divide us in our society. And this man really believed that. And so he invited them. And some of them came. They came a few times. They worshiped with the church until one day, the elders of that church took the preacher aside and said, you need to stop inviting those people from the other side of town. Let them go to a church on their side of the tracks. You can imagine how heartbroken that man was. He protested that God wants every person to be saved. And, and the church should be involved in that. We shouldn't push that responsibility off onto someone else. But the elders warned him that if he did not obey them, he would lose his job. Best I can recall, he did not stay at that church much longer. He gave up that job, but he sure gained my respect. If, God forbid, 
If that were ever our mindset toward any group of people, this church is for us, not for them, what would be our motives for sharing our faith at all? Would we have any ministry to people outside the circle of people that we're comfortable with? Jesus went to sinners and also went to tax collectors, people who were considered traitors in their society. And that made religious people uncomfortable. Would we ever model ourselves so closely after Jesus as to share life with people who were a little bit uncomfortable around? People who are younger than us. People who are older than us. People who seem to be living a less than godly life. People who live on the other side of the tracks. Or to start leaning toward our text this morning, in contrast to the Apostle Paul, What about popular TV and internet evangelists, you know how I like to pick on them, who draw huge crowds and get everybody swaying with emotion and heavenly ecstasy, and then they ask you to send money to their ministry so they can preach the gospel to more people, and then they use those contributions to finance their private jet, two or three mansions, and their life of luxury, because hey, ministry's hard work. They gotta rest. You've heard of evangelists like that? What message are they preaching exactly? They talk about Jesus, but are they really preaching Jesus? Are their motives pure? Is their mindset the mindset of Christ? Is their ministry godly? What's their message? The Apostle Paul was very much the opposite of the televangelist With the private jet, he was about as opposite as you can get. Because Paul wouldn't even make the people he taught pay him for teaching them. He took donations from other churches in order to start new churches. And he didn't charge those new churches anything. He talks about this in both of the letters that we have uh, from him to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He writes about it in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 7 to 9, in case you want to look it up. How he preached the gospel free of charge. Apparently, some people in the church in Corinth thought he must not be much of a teacher and apostle if he didn't even charge money for his teaching. Because everybody knows you get what you pay for, right? And they weren't paying him anything. But Paul went even further than that. Not only did he not charge for his teaching, but he suffered insult and persecution in order to share the message of Jesus. As a witness for Christ, he endured beatings, imprisonments, sleepless nights, hard travel, floggings, shipwrecks, all sorts of danger, and constant concern for all the churches. Just as part of his ministry as an apostle of Jesus. He talks about all these hardships three times in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. In chapter 6, verses 4 through 10, and in chapter 11, verses 23 to 33. And some of the people in the church in Corinth, people immature in their faith, who didn't yet understand the purpose of Christian ministry, thought Paul was out of his mind to live like this. They thought he was crazy. But coming into our text now, Paul says in the verse verse before where we're going to begin... So chapter 5, verse 10, he says that all of us have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ one day. And so he lives the way he does because he knows that we will all be held accountable to God for how we live. And so then he writes this. And what he says here, if we'll accept it and live it, 
will keep us oriented toward the motives, the mindset, the ministry, and the message that God calls us to have as we live as witnesses for Jesus. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Paul says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and we hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In this letter, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth in Greece, a church that he had started about five years earlier, we think. And he's dealing with some people in the church who have begun following false teachers who charge money and are polished speakers. And they boast about having great Jewish credentials, but they're leading the church away from Christ. And so Paul, in his letter, in order to bring the church back to Christ, he defends his ministry and he reminds the church of the things that are most important in Christian ministry. The things that he models as he follows Jesus. And what's important in his ministry as an apostle is also important in our ministry as we live as witnesses for Jesus today. So picking up from verse 10 where he says, all of us have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ one day. He says in verse 11 that since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. We know that Jesus will judge all people one day. And so we fear the Lord with that deep reverential respect for Jesus' authority that moves us to do what is right so that we'll be found pleasing to God on the day of judgment. And so because we know this reverential fear of the Lord, Paul says, we try to persuade others. We live as witnesses for Jesus, trying to persuade people to be saved from God's judgment. And that's one way that we do our duty in Christ's service. And at the same time, it rescues other people from the judgment. Our key word for verses 11 to 15 is motives. And this is one of our motives for living as witnesses for Jesus. We fear the Lord. In the rest of verses 11 and 12, Paul urges the church to understand the sincerity behind his ministry. 
God knows his heart, and he hopes the church does too. And he and his ministry team are not trying to get the church to like them exactly. That's not their purpose. But they want the church to take pride in them because the hearts of Paul and his team are right. And the false teachers in the church, they take pride in what is seen, what's on the surface, rather than what's in the heart. Paul wants the church to look deeper and see how sincere he is and how shallow the motivation of those false teachers is so that he can help them come back to God and stay true to Christ. So in verse 13, if Paul says, uh, if he and his team are out of their mind, you know, working for free and enduring incredible hardship for the gospel, Paul says, that's for God. If, we're, if we've gone crazy, we've gone crazy in service to God. That's our purpose. And if Paul and his team are in their right mind, if they're sensible and reasonable, well, that's for the church in service of these people they're bringing to Christ. And what's behind all of this is love. Verses 14 and 15, he says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. What is it that compels Paul and his team as they give their lives to minister to the church? Well, they're compelled by Christ's love. Christ died for all, so that all, as we live, would die to ourselves, but live for him who died for us and was raised again. This is what our baptism is all about, right? We're buried in the water. We die to ourselves at that moment. We rise up out of the water into a new life in Jesus, forgiven and adopted into the family of God, so that from that moment on, we live for Jesus. And we share in the hope of eternal life because God raised Jesus from the dead and promised to one day raise all who follow Jesus. And so Paul gives us these two motives for his ministry that we can apply to ourselves as we live as witnesses for Jesus. One, we fear the Lord. We know that we're accountable to him at the judgment and so we live in his service. And two, we know the love of Christ. He died for us so that we would die to ourselves and live for him. And so our motivation is is not ourselves. It's not to get the private jet or the beautiful beachfront mansion. It's not to get lots of people to follow us or to build a nice, comfortable church where everybody looks like me and I can be happy. It's not the point. Our motivation is what God has done for us in Christ. We fear the Lord and we love the Lord who loved us first. And died for us. And so that motivates us then to persuade others. Emphasis on persuade. That's our goal. To persuade people to follow Jesus. To save souls from God's judgment. To draw people into life with God. Because we believe God is good. And the best possible life is found only in him. And that's different from some people's goals. The goal of the false teachers in Corinth was somewhere in the neighborhood of personal prestige and personal gain. And Paul's not interested in any of that because he serves Jesus. Some Christians today seem to have the goal of of dominating in in our culture, destroying anyone who is against the church, as though by dominating others, we can make the cause of Christ the dominant force in our society. 
I see this most often when I run across YouTube videos with titles like, I, I looked up a couple the other day, Oxford Mathematician Destroys Atheist. Or Muslim Girl Gets Humbled and Dismantled by Calm Street Preacher. Was that what Jesus sent us to do? Destroy atheists and dismantle girls from another religion? And I understand that titles like that are devices to shock us, grab our attention, get us to click on that video. But I object to that language. It's offensive to me because Jesus did not, dis- did not die to destroy his enemies. He could have done that without dying. With a word, he could have destroyed his enemies. Jesus died to save his enemies. He gave his life for them, which was us, before we came to him. And so our mission as his people is not to destroy, dismantle, shame, embarrass, conquer, or dominate, but as Paul says it, to persuade, which often is more difficult. Because the people we're trying to bring to God are not our enemies, but they are prisoners of war, taken captive by our enemy, the devil. They're people just like us who need Jesus just as much as we do. And so motivated by fear of the Lord and the love of Christ, we try to persuade others that Jesus died for them and for us so that we all might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. And so those are the goal and the motives behind our pursuit of that goal. So now as we try to live as witnesses for Jesus, how do we accomplish that goal of persuading others, having the right motives and persuading others? When we get to 1 Peter these next six weeks, Peter will give us some very practical ways to live as witnesses for Jesus. But from Paul, today, we get the big picture. And it looks like this. First, we need to have a godly mindset. That's our key word for verses 16 and 17, mindset. Paul says in verse 16, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. So we have to change how we think about people. We no longer think about people the way most people do. That guy is in a gang. I want nothing to do with him. We're black, or we're white, or we're Latino, or we're Chinese, so we don't associate with those other people. No, from now on, we look at people the way God does, as people he created in his image, whom he loves and wants to be his children and to be saved, and whom he desires so deeply that he gave Jesus his son to die for them. If Jesus died for them, who am I to say that they're unworthy? Who am I to treat them as if they were unworthy? Jesus died for them. Paul says, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Paul himself, if you know his story from the book of Acts, thought at first that Jesus was a fraud, not raised from the dead, not the Son of God. He did everything he could to destroy the church. But Jesus personally spoke to Paul, struck him blind for three days, changed his life instantly. So Paul once regarded Christ from a worldly perspective, but no more. Now he saw Christ as Lord. And when we see Jesus as Lord and we're motivated by the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ, that changes our mindset. 
We don't think about people the same way anymore. In verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. Anyone who is in Christ has been made new. What they were is gone. The past is gone and they are made new in Christ. And so that church in Mississippi, if it's going to honor God, has to be a church that welcomes people from both sides of the tracks. And that was 25, almost 30 years ago. I pray that by now they do. And when I'm in the grocery store, I need to look at the people around me, even the ones who look a little suspicious to my eyes, as people God desires. Ideally, that would be my first impulse. Several years ago, I heard a preacher I really enjoy, uh, his name is Randy Harris, say something that stuck with me. He's a talented preacher, but he is really not a people person. I mean, he, his favorite thing is just to be stuck by himself somewhere with a whole bunch of books. That's what he loves. But he said that day that he prayed every morning, Lord, help me today to see Christ in every person I encounter. Or if not Christ, then someone in whom Christ desires to be formed. That's a powerful prayer. A prayer like that will change your perspective all day long. If we can share that prayer and live it, we will have the mindset God wants us to have about other people. And we'll be better at living as witnesses for Jesus because we will look at every person as someone who either belongs to Christ or who could and whom God desires. Then once we have the right mindset, we come to ministry, our key word for verse 18 and the first part of verse 19. Paul says there, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. We have the motives, we have the mindset, and now we have the ministry that God has given us. It started with apostles like Peter and Paul sent out by Jesus, but it is shared today by the whole church everywhere and across the span of time. The ministry of reconciliation, bringing people to God. That as God has brought us who were separated from him into a good relationship with him through Jesus, so we also help to draw people to God through Jesus so that they can share in that good relationship with God. And God will not hold their sins against them, but forgives them. Because Jesus paid for our sins on the cross if we'll come to God through him. And so our ministry is simply this. It's bringing people to God. The ministry of reconciliation. In the beginning, God created human beings in his image to live in relationship with him, to know him, to be his children. Our ancestors defied God, sinned against him, turned their backs on him, and so have we all. But through Jesus, God brings us back. Reconciliation. And to come to our last key word in the rest of verse 19 through verse 21, this is our message. Paul says, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. 
We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is our message. Be reconciled to God. Because God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. To take our sin on himself, on the cross, so that in him, we, having been forgiven, might become the righteousness of God. People who, in God's sight, are right. That's an overwhelming thought when we're honest with ourselves about all the times that we've turned away from God and done what we should not have done, all the times we've hurt him by doing evil, the weight of our sin, and yet in his profound love, God reaches out to us through Jesus to draw us to him to be healed and to be washed clean, to die to ourselves and to be born again into a new life in Jesus so that we don't live for ourselves anymore, but for him because God has made us his own. And once God has done that for us, we become Christ's ambassadors. And God sends us out and makes his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. Because look at what God has done for you. This is our message. Our motives, fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. Our mindset, we don't look at anyone the way the world does anymore, but now we look at people with the eyes of Jesus. Every person who comes to Jesus becomes a new creation. Our ministry, the ministry of reconciliation, bringing people to God. Our message, very simple, be reconciled to God. And with these motives, mindset, ministry, and message, we try to persuade others. As we work to live as witnesses for Jesus, if we can accept and put into practice what Paul teaches here, it will keep us from putting up walls between us and that guy at the grocery store or the people across the tracks. It will help keep our motives honest, not selfish. It will keep our purpose pure and our hearts sincere in devotion to God. And it will make the Lord's light in our lives shine brightly so that our witness for him will be effective. And so may God bless us this week as we live as witnesses for him. May God bless you as you pray for people in your life that you want to see come to follow Jesus, as you uh, long to see them be reconciled to God. May God answer those prayers. May he work in their hearts and their lives. May he bless us that we may shine a bright light for his glory. Let's pray together. Our dear God, thank you for your kindness to us in Jesus, who gave his life for us to show how much you loved us and who himself became sin for us as, as he took our sins upon himself on the cross. And Lord, because he paid for the penalty of our sins with his own body and his own blood, you have forgiven us and you have called us to come to you and be your children and to walk with you and to join you in this excellent work of bringing people to be reconciled to our creator. Lord, thank you for bringing us to you and work in us, Lord, 
and guide us that we may help to bring others to Jesus as well. Lord, we pray for this because we know how much you love us, how much you love the people around us. And we join you, Lord, in loving those around us. We ask, Father, that you would work powerfully in your church to shine a bright light of great hope to our community, to help draw people to Jesus. Help us to be pure in our motives, wise in our mindset, effective in our ministry, and clear in our message, so that we may bring you honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.